So moving into scripture, we're going to be reading from Galatians 1, verses 1 to 10. Paul, an apostle, sent not from man nor by a man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers and sisters with me. To the churches in Galatia, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age. According to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. As we've already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. Amen. Thank you, Christina. Hey, can we give Christina a big round of applause? She... Christina, as our, our children's director and her team, do a phenomenal job week in and week out back there uh, with our wonderful group of kids. And on top of that, they have the vision for pulling off another in-person camp, just building off what we did last year. So they're incredible. If you have any tugging of the heart to be a part of that, making that happen, uh, do ma make a note on the card and, and turn that in. We'd love to talk to you, get you set up. Uh, lots of wonderful opportunities to be, be involved and, and have an impact. Uh, let's pray. Uh, and then we'll get into things. And I just want to pray for something I, I imagine is on many of our hearts. I mean, what's going on in Turkey with the earthquakes there? We've got to be praying. Father, our hearts do go out to the people uh, of Turkey right now. Uh, we know you say in your word that uh, earth pains, like earthquakes and otherwise, will only increase as time goes on. Still, it's as you say elsewhere in your word, there's a lot of groaning happening right now. There's a lot of grieving happening right now. And so, Father, we pray, first of all, for those who may still otherwise be, be spared and saved out of the rubble, would you, would you give rescue workers just your hand of supernatural favor? Would you be with families that are mourning deeply right now with all the loss? And, Father, would you help us as, uh, as a people and as your church, local and, and capital C church, if there are ways that we can be a part to help send aid uh, beyond just praying. Help, show us that we might be, be with our brothers and sisters who are over there suffering, but also just for the people, just on the whole. Be with, be with Turkey now. And then, Fathers, we turn now to your word to look at a book of Scripture that just so happens to be, uh, have been read, written uh, first to an audience there in modern-day Turkey. Lord, we, we pray that you would give us your spirit to understand uh, what it is you have in front of us today. Would you please give us your spirit to understand your word to, to from the inside out, make us increasingly like Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. Well, I'm excited to begin a new series with you today through the book of Galatians for a few reasons. Uh, one of those reasons is that uh, it's, it's, it's my hope and goal uh, to, to give the church what I like to think of as a well-rounded biblical diet. 
Okay, so, you know, if you were to break up the major sections of Scripture, you could really call it into three parts. Please understand this is an oversimplification, but there's really three main components of the Scripture if you want to think of it this way. There's the Old Testament or Hebrew Scriptures that lead up to Jesus' life and ministry. Uh, last summer, we spent some time uh, very specifically in the Old Testament, and then even after, even, even uh, the last few uh, uh, weeks, we've spent quite a bit of time in the Psalms, for instance. Uh, last fall and winter, we got into uh, one of the major components in the New Testament, that is one of the, one of the Gospels, or biographical accounts of Jesus' life and ministry. We're looking at the Gospel of Luke. Well, today, we're going to get into the other major component of the New Testament, and that is one of the letters, or the epistles, uh, written by one of the apostles to the early church. It's Paul's letter, the Apostle Paul's letter, to the, the churches in the region of Galatia, the upper easternmost part of the Mediterranean, where he had gone throughout uh, starting churches there. But I'm also excited to get, uh, get into Galatians with you just because of its importance. I mean, Galatians has had a, a tremendous impact on uh, history. I mean, Galatians was perhaps one of, was the key, one of the key texts for the Reformation. It was perhaps the key text for the Great Awakening. It just had a huge impact. So I'd love to get it under your belt, so to speak. Uh, one Bible commentator I was looking at this week said uh, the book of Galatians is dynamite. I mean, it's just packed with power. You've got this, this explosive energy. You've got this explosive joy and, and urgency just all throughout the letter. And, you know, without skipping a beat, Paul just hit, comes out the gates swinging, as we'll see. And perhaps you already heard as we, we read through it. But one of the major themes of the, of the book of Galatians is about freedom. So high level, we're calling the series The Gospel, uh, Our Greatest Need. And I'm excited about that because it really gets to the heart of what the scriptures are all about, how we all have these needs we're trying to find uh, fulfillment in. And one of the major themes underneath that that we're going to focus in on today, because chapter one kind of gets into this, is how the gospel brings freedom. Or in our text today, it rescues us. Uh, Galatians 5.1 says, Christ died to set you free. Well, free from what? There's a lot of things we can live in this life, uh, live for in this life, for fulfillment, satisfaction, that, that can easily have an enslaving impact on our lives. But I wonder if it would perk your attention to know that most specifically of all, Christ says, of all the things that can be enslaving, Christ died to set you free from religion. Now, wait a minute. Aren't we sitting in a religious setting? You're looking at a religious text? Like, what, what do you mean? Yeah. One of the big claims of the book of Galatians is Christ didn't die to give you religion. Christ died to set you free from religion. What does that mean? Well, journey with us through Galatians. Because the answer to this seemingly paradoxical statement or thought gets not only at the heart of what Galatians is all about, it gets at the heart of what the Bible's all about because it gets to the gospel. So we're going to unpack that, how the gospel sets us free, how it rescues us, and why that matters. Okay? So we're just going to jump right in. We've already prayed. And look at the opening remarks of Paul here. And I just want to say, just here at the go, my 
my aim is to introduce the letter, its context, and its author as we go, okay? So, for instance, next, next week we're going to get much more into Paul's life and who he is, what he's about. Uh, but today we're just going to kind of jump in and we'll kind of un, uh, uh, unpack it as we go. So, Galatians starts off with words of salutations, right? Uh, it says, Paul, an apostle, he's like, I'm, I'm writing this, I, I'm, I'm sent not from man or, nor by a man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. All of the brothers and sisters with me, we write to you, the churches in Galatia, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Okay, so these are words of salutations. Uh, spoiler alert, the next verse, verse 6, after the one we just read, uh, Paul goes from 0 to 60 in less than three, three seconds. We're going to see that here in a moment. But we just have enough to unpack a little bit some, from these words of salutations. In fact, we don't have enough time to unpack all of it, but we're just going to pull out one key thought from just these words of salutations, and that we see from verse 4, that the gospel frees or rescues us from the present evil age. The gospel frees us from the present evil age. Uh, when it says he rescues us in the original Greek language, that's a word that means not rescuing out of the presence from something. It's he rescues us out of the, out of the power of something. So he's saying the gospel frees or rescues us from the power of the present evil age. Uh, wh what does that mean? Well, it's as we kind of already have talked about. It's that we can so easily in this life live for things that apart from God, we hope to get life from, fulfillment, satisfaction, but they end up enslaving us. Uh, there's this really awesome uh, survey that the Alpha Course puts together that's, that kind of gets at this, and I think it's in, in a helpful way. Our Alpha Course is a course that we run uh, from time to time for, for those exploring the Christian faith. If, if you're interested in exploring the Christian faith, or you have a coworker or a neighbor you think might be interested, uh, we put this course together specifically for folks who are, who are there and, and asking questions. Uh, so we'd love to have you be a part of that. But during one of the videos... They go around and they ask a very key question out on the streets of London with their video cameras. Uh, they just ask a, a, diverse, a diversity of people and get a diversity of answers to this core of questions, what makes you most happy in life? Could you imagine just like being on your way to coffee one morning on the way to work and someone comes up with a camera, uh, you know, just asks you this question, like, how would you answer that? What makes you most happy in life? And I love how so many people answered this question in different ways. A couple of the dudes, I mean, they made me chuckle as much as they just really gave a, a fresh wind of, of just, you know, freshness of, of, of being genuine and real. Uh, there's, there's one dude in particular who was all, yeah, what's, what makes you happiest in life? He's like, women. And then he just leaned, women. Did I mention women? You know, another dude is just like, alcohol. It's like, <laughs> I'm serious. It's funny, but it's also like, okay, he's being real. Other folks were like, well, I guess money. Uh, There's a few people who said, you know, relationships, friendships, right? Uh, there's all, we all have things that we're, we're living for in life to give satisfaction, fulfillment, and the like. And one of the ways we can get to the heart of what those things might be for us is to consider what really just brings us despair when we, when we don't get them or have them and they're taken from us? Or what are those things where it's like we, we just are shooting for them and we rarely do get the chance to get them and perhaps in, in abundance we realize, wait, 
There's got to be something more. Uh, we all have things like this that we're just, we're just living for. Uh, the founder and CEO of Charity Water, a guy named Scott Harrison, who, from what I understand, is doing some incredible work in developing countries, he said this about his earlier life. He said, from 18 to 28, I really climbed New York's social ladder. At 28, I had gotten many of the things that I had thought I had wanted. My girlfriend was on a cover of magazines. I had a Beamer. I had a Rolex. I had a Labrador Retriever. Some of us are like, I can check that one off. I had a grand piano in my New York City apartment. Those of you who've lived in New York, you probably didn't have room for a grand piano, let alone. And I was so unhappy. Something awakened in me. It was a realization that I would never find happiness where I was looking for it. There would never be enough girls, drugs, or parties, and it just goes on. You know, there are countless celebrities who've, in interview, on record, said things akin to what Jim Carrey, Canadian actor, I think puts so eloquently. He said, I wish everybody could get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so that they can see that it's not the answer. When it says Christ rescues us from this present evil age, a big part of that is saying, apart from God, there are so many things that we can live for to try to get life, satisfaction, fulfillment, you name it, identity, self-worth, whatever it might be, and they just cannot, will never satisfy, not fully. And I just listed off some examples of the rare case of when we do get those things or have an abundance. Uh, what about the times when we don't, which is more often the case? Uh, there are plenty of things that we're living for. It's just, man, they can, they can have an enslaving effect. I was reading an article this past week sent uh, by, one of, uh, by one of you. I thought it was a really insightful article. Um, it, was, it was talking about how uh, of many things, how uh, in our culture, there's this real onus it can feel to, to find and maintain a self of identity. So the kind of the thought that was being, being said is we live in a very individualistic culture. In fact, modern day America is the most individualist culture essentially of, of all time. Uh, now, today, let alone throughout all, all of time, it's, other cultures are family-based, communal-based, far more so than we, but we're very individualistic. And without taking aim at that, saying good, bad, or whatever, he was just saying the reality of that is where we are as a culture is it can be quite exhausting, actually, when we have this onus to, to find our identity in something and really kind of maintain that. Here's what the author said. The modern self is exceptionally fragile. While having the freedom to define and validate oneself is superficially liberating, it is also exhausting. You and you alone must create and sustain your identity. This has contributed to unprecedented levels of depression and anxiety and never satisfied longings for affirmation. So, for instance, we call ourselves current. We say there's a strong current in the Silicon Valley to find things like identity, self-worth, meaning, in things like career, making it big. We find our identity in such things. And sadly, it's when things like the last round of layoffs that come around where we, we get rocked a little bit. Whether we're directly affected or indirectly affected, we realize, boy, maybe that's not as solid ground as I would have thought or have been living for. What Paul is saying here is there are many things, even good things, that we can live for that ultimately cannot, will not satisfy. The only one that can satisfy fully, ultimately, is the Lord. And he's made that possible through his son when he's rescued us from this present age. There's a wonderful story that Jesus shares in Luke 15 uh, that I think uh, gets to the heart of what this looks like. It's perhaps Jesus' most famous 
story of all, his most famous parable or short story with a spiritual lesson that he gives. It's called uh, famously the, the parable of the, of the prodigal son. And the younger brother in this story comes to the father and straight up asks his father for his inheritance early. I say ask, but actually he demanded. He's like, dad, give me my inheritance because I'm, I'm out of here. Now, in our culture, if somebody were to do that, could you imagine a young man, young adult man, asking or demanding their, from, their, from his parents, you know, his inheritance early? That would be way over the top disrespectful in our culture. But remember, back then, it was far more familial based. It was far more kind of patriarchal and all the rest. So in the time when Jesus was sharing this story, I mean, disrespect compared to like what it would be today is like on the order of magnitude of like a multiplier of 10, and this guy goes, and he, said, he demands from his father and his inheritance. So Jesus is telling the story. Clearly, certainly, his original audience would have been absolutely shocked at this detail. What was even more shocking was that Jesus went on to say, and the father's like, okay, go for it. Here's your inheritance early. So the, the younger brother goes off and lives essentially the licentious life. He goes off and essentially lives the present-day age, just lives it up extravagant living, living up to his heart content. But then what he finds out is he eventually reaches rock bottom. As Jesus tells it, he finally runs out of money. He finds that there's really no uh, end that is ultimately satisfying on that route. And he, he hits rock bottom and, and, fi and finds a job working for essentially a farmer feeding uh, uh, pigs and stealing from their slop in order to eat and make ends, ends meet. And he realizes in that low of lows, that it would probably be better to go back to his dad. He'd have to eat a little bit of humble pie, but it's like, man, if he, if, if he reasons, if I could at least just go and be a servant for my dad, it'd go, it'd go better for me from where I found myself to be. So he, he gathers himself up, starts heading back to his father's house, and on the way, he starts to work on this little speech of apologizing to his dad. He's going to say to his dad, he's, he figures, okay, I've sinned against God. I've sinned against you, dad. Would you please just at least take me back in as a servant? So he's working on that. Well, the father sees him come over the horizon and starts taking off towards the sun. Now, if you've heard this story before, one of the details about Jesus telling the story that has always just intrigued me is the fact that it seems like the father was waiting for his son to come over the horizon, come home. I mean, it's almost as if the father was actively waiting for, looking out for this son, which keep in mind would have been the last thing probably that a father in that circumstance with that son having done what he had done would have been doing. And yet he runs after the son. If you've heard the story in a setting like this before, you know, Bible scholars tell us that that was considered a very undignified thing for the father to do just in general, let alone for this very undeserving son, as it would have been thought about. Father gets up to him, and the son, seeing him come close, starts his little speech. Father, sin against heaven, I've sinned against you. Would you take, and then the father just smothers him with love. Won't, won't even let him finish his little prepared speech, and just calls for a ring, calls for uh, a feast, fattened calf to be killed so that we could celebrate that his son had returned. He was dead, and now he's alive. He's lost. Now he's found. I mean, you think about the beauty of that story, it's really a picture of what we're talking about today. It's what Christ has done for us to save us, to rescue us from the present age. We can go off and we can take all the wonderful things that God has given us, who he is, what he's about, and just live it to our own heart's content. 
But the gospel, the good news is Jesus rescued us. God the Father and God the Son decided, you know what, let's go bring them back into our family. The gospel in a nutshell is God created us to be in relationship with him, but we rejected him. That's what the Bible calls sin, by the way. Just took all its good and just decided to do it our own way. Can't find fulfillment there. There's nothing apart from God we can find fulfillment. But God said, you know what? Let's go get them. Sent, their, sent his son and Jesus came into this world to do the very thing that you and I can't do for ourselves and make a way back into the father's family. That's the gospel. That's what Jesus has done, rescued us to bring us into the family. If you're here today, you've never received that. That is the most important thing you could hear today. It's the good news. It's by receiving what Jesus did on the cross for your sins and mine by faith and by faith alone, which we'll unpack here more in a minute, you can come back into a relationship with him. So Christ has died to rescue us from this evil, this evil age. But number two, the gospel frees us from religion. Okay, what does that mean? Now we get into the heart of Paul's letter. Verse six, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. Are we getting the force of what is happening here as Paul's writing? I understand that I read the opening remarks, the salutations, and now we're kind of like, we've made some thoughts on, now we're getting to verse six. There's a little bit of a gap here. But it's essentially as if Paul's like, I, Paul, apostle, am writing to you, grace and peace to you, verse six. What in the world, Galatians? You see that? He's just like, grace and peace to you, do, do, do. Hey, man, you, you got to be kidding me, Galatians. Really? And he just kind of gets into it with them. He's, he's just, he's so amped up. He's just, he's got to handle this with them, help them understand something. He's saying, I'm astonished at what's happened to you, Galatians. Specifically that I came preaching to you the gospel, and yet now you're hearing another gospel that really isn't a gospel at all. All right, so now we need to understand a little bit more of the context of Galatians. I mentioned earlier that Paul was a church planner, and he went throughout the upper eastern most point of the Mediterranean Sea, starting these new churches in the region that was then known as, as Galatia. He came in preaching the gospel. This was, this was Gentile territory. Gentile just means non-Jewish Ten, uh, territory. And Gentiles, non-Jews, were putting their faith in Jesus. It was really incredible. And it was really wonderful. It was something the, the Bible had been speaking to for, for millennia, that God's promise wasn't just for his, his people, the Jews, but it was ultimately for, quote, all nations. That promise goes all the way back to the calling of Abraham. And it now it was really coming to fruition. It was wonderful. It's beautiful. As it was also very, very messy. You know, these Gentiles were coming to faith, and these Jewish Christians are like, wait a minute, though. So partly it was really exciting, but it was also really messy. Why was it messy? Well, because people are people. And that's another thing we're going to get into. Not today, but in terms of community, how it works out when we see things differently or come at things differently. But what's important to understand for this letter is what was happening as Paul was going around the upper eastern Mediterranean, starting these churches, preaching the gospel, starting these churches on the basis of that gospel. And then there was these, we'll call them false teachers, kind of trailing in his wake. Paul's gone? All right, let's move in. And came in essentially saying, okay, Paul has taught you his gospel. You need to believe in Jesus. Receive what he's done for you by faith alone. But you must also be circumcised. 
Now, I don't know what the appeal to that. I'm sorry, I shouldn't make some jokes about circumcision and all that. But the, the fact of the matter is there's a strong temptation to go, okay, you have to believe this gospel, they were saying, but you must also adopt Jewish customs. You must also, you must also adopt our ceremonial laws. Then, and only then, when you do that and you, you, you believe in Jesus and you do these things, you adopt these customs, then you're in with God. Then you're in with the rest of us. And Paul is here just adamantly in verse 6 saying, no, 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 Galatians. Don't, no, don't, don't do that. Don't go there. His main point is if you take anything and add it to the gospel, that is faith in Jesus alone. If you take anything and add to it, you have lost the gospel. In fact, for those of you who are kind of, you know, Bible scholars uh, in, in training, uh, when I was... Uh, going through ordination and asked in front of a, a large group of pastors and elders kind of just being grilled on this, one of the questions was, what's the, what's the point of Galatians? And to me, the point of Galatians is the gospel plus anything equals no gospel. The gospel of faith in Jesus alone for what he's done for us on the cross plus anything equals no gospel. If we add anything to receiving what Jesus has done, the grace of, of, of our Lord by faith alone, and add anything to that, we've missed the whole thing because we've taken what only God has done, can do, can do for us, and we've added, well, our own effort. We've added what we bring to the table. And in that situation, it was like, okay, you got to be circumcised. Okay, you got to adopt our Jewish customs. But that's taken many forms in different places throughout history. So, for instance, this is one of the key texts during the, the Reformation, Martin Luther looked to Galatians in, in big part to say, you know, the, the Roman Catholic Church at the time was saying, okay, yeah, you have to believe in Jesus by faith, but you must also do penitence, or you must also give indulgences, or you must also, you know, be baptized. And, and if you're baptized, then you will be saved. The problem is with that is it goes against what Paul is saying here in, the, in Galatians. In fact, one of the things we do when we invite and invite uh, you to be baptized, if you've never been baptized, to consider it. We'll talk with you beforehand so you understand what it is we're inviting you into, what, what Jesus invites you into. And one of the key components there, theologically, is baptism doesn't save you, doesn't save me. Baptism is an outward expression of what has already taken place within us when we've put our faith in Jesus for what he has done for us. Well, then why do we get baptized? Well, because Jesus tells us to. And at one point he says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? It's just not the way in which we are brought back into relationship with him. Is that making sense? It's something we do because, well, our Lord tells us to. Okay, we should do it. And we're getting ready to do some more baptisms soon. So if you're interested, come talk to us. We'd love to, love to talk to you and set that up. Um, hey, this is also a marking of a cult. Now, this is not something I just randomly bring up here, okay? But hey, this, is one of the, this is the place to talk about it, okay? I'm just going to hit on this real quickly and then we'll move on. A mark of a cult is to say, hey, you got to believe in Jesus, certainly, but you must also do, and then fill in the blank. You must also be baptized in our church. You must also accept our founder and his scripture. You must also uh, call our church the only church. And by the way, you think I'm being random? I'm not being random. Those are actually specific things. I used to do ministry in Berkeley, okay? Probably don't need to say anymore, okay? But now, I bring that up too because, hey, Probably, percentage-wise, very few of you are going to have to, God willing, have to think about that or deal with that. But for the few of you do, remember, the gospel plus anything makes no gospel. And I've had very good friends, very, what you would think to be solid Christians, start to get sucked into these cults because what happens is the cults don't just start there. They just kind of, you get down here and then they start, okay, 
If you have any questions about that, see me afterwards. Okay, how does this teaching bear relevance for us here and now? Okay, if we're not in that small percentage of people needing to think about those very particular things. Where, where does it hit home for us? Does it hit for us? Absolutely. One of the key things to understand and recognize about the book of Galatians is it was written to Christians. Meaning, he's not just saying you got to believe the gospel to people who don't believe the gospel. He's saying it to people who otherwise should believe the gospel. Is that registering? So by implication, he's saying, Christians, you need to be very careful. It is very easy to veer away from the gospel. How so? Well, many ways. One of the simplest, easiest ways to talk about it is legalism. We start to say, well, okay, I'm going to follow Jesus, but I'm also going to do these other things. I got to do these other things. I remember uh, early on, I was uh, meeting up with a lot of church uh, potential partners when we were, before we were meeting together on a weekly basis, uh, on a weekly basis, launching current. And one of these uh, churches that I met with was one of the very, very big churches in the area. I got together with one of their pastors and uh, just for coffee. And he at one point over coffee said, hey, I'm, I'm working on something. Uh, we, we recently did a, a survey, excuse me, in our, in our church. Do you want to see kind of the survey results that we got back? And so I, I came over, looked over his shoulder. He had an Excel sheet. And the question that he had open was, what does it mean to be Christian? And I, I think there was almost, I, I want to say there's about a thousand responses. Very big church, a lot of people responded. What does it mean to be Christian? And he had them kind of organized in terms of like what answer came back most in descending order. And I was reading this, and as I was reading this, my heart began to drop a little bit because what does it mean to be Christian? Way at the top of the list were things like, oh, go to church, pray, be a good person, you know, do good things. And I think, I remember it was somewhere around 15 or so's faith in Jesus. Now, I understand surveys are interpreted different ways, so I'm not trying to like take aim at, you know, this, but I'm just... What it means to be a Christian, what it means to be a follower, of, uh, is, is to receive what God has done by faith. And all these other things just become an outflowing of it. Is this making sense? Uh, one of the really helpful ways to consider this is a former pastor of Cindy's and mine, a guy named uh, Tim Keller, uh, put together uh, just a, a breakdown between what we're calling religion and the gospel. I think it's super helpful. Perhaps we'll unpack this more in our in groups this week. But if you want to think about it as religion versus the gospel or just as difference from the gospel, uh, religion says, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. The gospel says, I'm accepted, therefore I obey. And really this first slide here, I'm going to read a few of these. Really, this is the defining one. Like, this is how we're defining religion today. I obey, therefore I'm accepted. I do things in order to garner God's favor or higher power's favor. Or I avoid things so that I don't fall into bad graces. Whereas the gospel says, I'm accepted, therefore I obey. Okay? The motivation of religion is based on fear and insecurity. The gospel's motivation is based on grateful joy. And you can see how with religion and, and that motivation, you can very easily just kind of you know, start to, you know, guilt, spiritual guilt is not far behind that. Judgmentalism is not far behind. Okay, you can see the rest of it. As I continue to read this list, here's what I encourage each of us to do. I would encourage you, especially Christian friends, although I think this applies to wherever you are on spiritual journey, to the Christian brothers and sisters here, I would encourage you as I read this list to consider how you may intentionally or unintentionally veer into the religious side versus the gospel. Okay, religion says I obey God in order to get things from God, whereas the gospel says, I obey to get God 
to delight in and resemble him. Religion says, when circumstances in my life go wrong, I'm angry at God or myself, and I might not even know which, since I believe that anyone who is good deserves a comfortable life. Gospel says, when circumstances in my life go wrong, I struggle, sure, but I know that all my punishment fell on Jesus, that while God may allow this for my training, he will exercise his fatherly love within my trial. Religion says, when I am criticized, I am furious or devastated because it is essential for me to think of myself or for others to think of me as a good person. Threats to that self-image must be destroyed at all costs. The gospel says, when I am criticized, I struggle, but it is not essential for me to think of myself as a good person. My identity is not built on my performance, but on God's love for me in Christ. Religion says, my prayer life consists largely of petition. It only heats up when I am in need. My main purpose in prayer is to control my circumstances. The gospel is my prayer life consists of generous stretches of praise and adoration. My main purpose is fellowship with God. Religion says my self-view swings between two poles. If and when I am living up to my standards, I feel confident. But then I am prone to be proud and unsympathetic to people who fail. If and when I am not living up to the standards, I feel humble but not confident. I feel like a failure. Gospel, meanwhile, says my self-view is not based on a view of myself as a moral achiever. In Christ, I am at once sinful and lost, yet accepted. I am so bad he had to die for me, and so loved he was glad to die for me. This leads me to deeper humility as well as deeper confidence without either sniveling or swaggering. Last one, my identity and self-worth are based mainly on how hard I work or how moral I am, so I must look down on others I perceive as lazy or immoral. I disdain and feel superior to others. The gospel says my identity and self-worth are centered on the one who died for his enemies, including me. Only by sheer grace am I, am I what I am, so I, look, so I can't look down on those who believe or practice something different from me. I have no inner need to win arguments. I think for real about it, this is just about all of us much of the time. It is very easy to veer into essentially making our relationship with God about us and what we're doing and what we bring to the table when the gospel says it is nothing about what we bring to the table other than receiving the gift of grace by faith. The other brother in that famous story of the prodigal son was the older brother who, when he saw the father bringing the younger son back in, he got ticked off. The older brother, when the younger brother came back in and the father was throwing a party, was ticked. And the father went out to see him, and the brother didn't mince words. He used words of religion and said, Father, I have been following you essentially perfectly my whole life. I, des I deserve a calf from time to time to throw a party with my friends, but you haven't even done that. Words of religion. But the father in Jesus' parable responds by saying, son, don't you realize that what I have is yours? And we had to throw a party for your younger, your younger brother. Are you kidding? He was lost and now he's been found. He was blind, but now he sees. Yeah, meanwhile, the, young, the older brother had very little, I mean, he was sneering at the younger brother. He didn't have the ability even to celebrate with him. What's most terrifying to me about that parable is when Jesus ends it, we don't ever know if the older brother came to his senses. In other, we, in other words, we don't know if the religious figure in that story ever came back to the gospel. And that's what we're talking about here in Galatians, is it is really easy to make 
our relationship with God about us again. We can take good things, whether it's in this present age or whether it's of religion, things that God calls us to and make it the thing where we find our identity, where we, where we put our hope, when we can do no other than to put our hope in Jesus. You know what's incredible? Notice something in verse 6. Paul says this, you know, he just comes out the gate swinging. He says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting, here's what he says, the one who called you to live the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Notice Paul doesn't go, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting the doctrine of faith, you know, grace by faith alone. He says, you're deserting the one who called you. Christianity isn't a doctrine, it's a person. It's following Jesus and specifically what he has done for you and me. And the minute we start to make it about other things, the minute we lose what it's ultimately about. And it's so easy for us to veer into that. Here's the thought, the big thought to me from today, just as Galatians, we're getting into it. And then really, as we, as we move forward, I think this will, this will come back again and again. The gospel is not something Christians believe and then graduate from. The gospel is the means in which we grow into the likeness of Jesus. The gospel is not something we believe and then we have to move on to upgrading our Christianity by our own effort, leveling up. The gospel is the means in which we grow in the faith. How does that work? Well, it's growing in our understanding of who we are, how much we need Christ's help, the depths of our sin, essentially, which the more I live life, the more I understand about myself, while it's also seeing the depths of God's love to meet us there and further still. It's an inside-out faith. It's an inside When we receive who he is, who he is, and what he's done, as we meditate on that, as we let that sink into our hearts more deeply, then we will maybe, just maybe, become increasingly like him. But it's not about finding our way to do what we need to do so we feel better about ourselves, which we could so easily do without even realizing it. What do you need rescuing from today? Where might you be placing hope, happiness, of, of the ultimate sense, life, is it in something of this present day and age? Is it in something that is related to church, religious even? Uh, these are things that can happen so easily at the heart level, but, but the goal is as we veer to be, you know, the younger brother or we veer to be the, the older brother, present life, religion, the goal is to come back to the gospel, find our way and, and acceptance for who he is and what, and what he's done. And when we do that, there's, so, there's such freedom. And so I invite you into that today, and I'm excited to look at this more deeply with you as we journey through Galatians and continue, and continue to consider the implications of all of this. Uh, let's pray. Father, thank you for together with the Son giving us the gospel, sending Jesus to die on the cross for our sins in order to rescue us from ourselves. And whether that manifests in us chasing things in this life or it's in chasing things of religion, would you help us to chase you for you? And Father, would you help us follow you for you? That means following you, but not for the sake of finding our identity and life in that. It's just, it's out of a heart of gratitude and love. And we confess, I confess, we, we just so quickly veer one way or the other. To just go in like the younger brother. Oh, I'm just going to do it this way. I don't need your ways. 
or going, hey, I'm going to take your ways and make them my ways. Would you help us come into the bracing love of the Father, of receiving the gospel, what Jesus has done for us, letting that melt into our hearts that we might increasingly become made into the likeness of him. The church so desperately needs this. We so desperately need this. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.